Hello, my name is Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to tell you a story. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the very second episode of This Thing That I Do. Well, you know, now that I have just said it, I realize people don't actually say very second. They say very first, not very second. So I'm going to edit that out and start again. Unless I don't, because editing is hard. Anyway, welcome back, everyone. This is another thing that I'm recording for you to listen to. Now, if you recall from the last episode... I did not actually have a name for this thing that I'm doing. That has changed. To be fair, you probably don't recall because that first episode was roughly six months ago. During that episode, I said I was going to do this on a regular basis. and Apparently, my idea of a regular basis is a lot different from other people's. Regardless, I did not have a name for it at that point, but I do now. When I put out the question of what should I call it, an anonymous commenter said, why don't you call it the Elkcast? Elkcast, because your daddy elk, Elkcast. That was a great idea. I should have thought it, thought about it myself. And since it was an anonymous commenter, I'm going to take credit for it. No, that's not true. Whoever you are, thank you. That's what I'm going to call it. And uh, full credit to you. So write me back and tell me who you are. Okay, then. So here we go. I am Paul Matthew Carr, or Daddy Elk, as I'm known to my internet friends. And you are listening to the newly christened Elkcast. Welcome. The story I'm going to give you tonight is uh, one that was written about two years ago. It's more of an essay, sort of a rambling essay, and it's about my love of the beat generation. When I was in my mid to late teens, I just loved the beats, the bohemians, the hippies. It was just, I tried to articulate what it is in the past, what it was that appealed to me so much about them, and it's just... Basically, it's the idea of outward creativity. (laughs) It's the idea of people who came together because of art, because of writing, because of dance, whatever, whatever it was. They got together in order to be creative, and they went out to experience life to inform that creativity. Now, that might be overly romanticizing uh, what it is that they actually did, and, they, and they're the ones who actually over-romanticized what it is they actually did. But the idea of it just was so appealing to me. I, I, I loved it. Yeah. I wanted to be it. I wanted to live it. And so I set out to replicate that lifestyle. And in many ways, I succeeded. In many ways, I failed. Ultimately, I came to realize that attempting to replicate someone else's life is not true to your own. And I eventually settled in on my own path. But I have to admit... There is still something about the beats that resonates with me. There is still, to this day, a compulsion to head down the road, to to sail the ribbon of highway with a full tank of gas, a pen, and a notebook, and look for the next adventure. (laughs) But romantic fantasies aside, the essence of their writing, the essence of the art, still touches me. The stream of consciousness, the honesty, the raw naked self laid bare is something that still informs what I write, even if the style is not something I still embrace. So the story I will read tonight is an homage to that, I suppose. It's called All the Road Going. 
On my 16th birthday, my brother gave me a copy of Jack Kerouac's On the Road, and it changed my life forever. Not really. It'd be nice if it did, if it worked that way, like a movie, all cut and dry. A defined beginning, a movement towards clear resolution, a satisfying ending. That'd be nice. It would go something like this, I think. Opening scene. Boy receives inspirational text from older sibling that sets off a life-changing adventure. An adventure that would consist of trials and tribulations and romance and comedy. And in the end, there'd be tragedy, and from it, a moment of clarity. There would, of course, be an inscription in the book. It'd be found at the end, and it would be prophetic and poignant. It would be read in a touching voiceover, in the brother's voice, who had probably died at some point in the story. And we would cut to a close-up of the main character smiling, staring into the distance, into a star-filled sky as a shooting star falls. And the boy would know, deep down in his heart he would know, that what he was searching for was inside him all the time. Be nice if it was like that, all cut and dry, like a movie. In reality, there was no inscription. It wasn't even wrapped. My brother just handed me a dog-eared paperback copy of the book and said, Here, you'll be into this. I didn't actually read it for over a year. I did carry it with me, though. That tattered paperback rode in my backpack, mingling with school books and pencils and loose change. A talisman of sorts. A symbol of something I wanted to do, wanted to be. When I finally did read it, it was in a place I didn't expect. Next to a dumpster, sitting on broken-down boxes. It was summer, and I had taken a job at BJ's Wholesale Club. A temple of consumerism where anything could be bought. Bought big. Model trains, barca loungers, floppy disks and hundred packs and projection TVs and peanut butter jars the size of a child's head. It was casual decadence on metal shelves, and I spent my days outside. I was the cart retriever. It was my job to stand in the parking lot and wait. I waited for the clients to unload their massive shopping carts into massive vehicles and drive away. And after a respectful amount of time, I would retrieve the cart and place it back at the front door position to be filled again with giant foodstuffs and electronics. I wore normal street clothes and a red vest and a large pin that said, Ask me about BJ's. I was embarrassed about this at first, but I began to wear it with pride and then began to actively engage the question. Turns out when confronted, others are more embarrassed than you are. I was only allowed inside for lunch breaks or to go to the bathroom. And the rest of the time, I was left by myself to walk around the parking lot, smoke cigarettes, and hang around the dumpsters and read. So I read. I read quickly at first, the way you'd read an adventure novel. Then I read slower, savoring the way the words fell together on the page, like paint on a canvas. Then I would start over when I was done, from the last word to the first word in quick succession. And when I was done, I started again. And by the end of the summer, I was Sal Paradise. And I wanted to hear jazz, and I wanted to know the mad people who lived on the edges. You know, the ones who burned, burned like Roman candles, and thought about the road. I thought about what it would be like to be a traveler, to meet other people who didn't think like me. People who didn't live their lives in the same three-block radius, and only went to vacations to Atlantic City on the weekends, and maybe Florida once a year if they were lucky. I thought about leaving, but I was afraid to leave. Then I went to a funeral. The funeral for a man I didn't know. And all the other men there wore suits and they wore black ties. And all the women wore black dresses and they kept their eyes downcast. And I was asked to be a pallbearer, to carry the body of the man I did not know. It was an honor, I was told, to carry the coffin. 
but I knew I was only asked because I was young and stronger than the other people there. And the women cried when I went past them. And at the reception, I was thanked for what I had done. And I was told that I had really stepped up and done something important. And someone I didn't know handed me a beer and a plastic cup even though I was underage because it was a special occasion and I had done a good job. And then a man came around with ham and cheese sandwiches on a silver tray and everyone ate because there was nothing else to do. And I wanted to leave, so I decided to leave. I bought a car, just a Chevy, crap little utilitarian car, and I drove. I wore red flannel shirts and I smoked Marlboro Reds one after the other, lit off the other's end. I dragged Budweiser beer from cans and I claimed that the taste of metal made it better. And I listened to bebop jazz and classic rock and blues and I told anyone who would listen that the time of the created genius was dead. And I talked about philosophy, filtered through the lens of an overhorny, undersexed child, and I called it profound. And I knew art. I knew what it was, and I knew what it wasn't. And I insisted I could tell true from false, and I could spot a phony from a year away. And I was Sal Paradise, and I was Holden Caulfield, and I was Hunter Thompson, and I was Bob Dylan. I was so much more than I would ever actually be. And I drove away from my home with a tattered paperback in my pocket. I could drive. I could drive and drive and drive. I crossed this country a dozen times, sometimes with friends, sometimes just myself. The road became the destination. The road became a meditation, an escape. I found myself chasing the horizon. I didn't stay in one place too long because there were too many places to go, too many people to meet, too many things to do. Just go. I had to live as much as possible now. Now. Live like a rocket. Live like a firecracker. If I stopped, I'd miss something. I couldn't miss anything. So no sleep, no rest, keep going. If you stop, you might die. And if you die, all you get is ham and cheese sandwiches on a silver platter, and a stranger will carry you to a hole in the ground. So live now, live like a rocket, live like a firecracker, and you just go. You go, 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 and you pop in brilliance and color and glory. Then one day I found myself in Nebraska, on the side of the road, in a rest stop off I-80. I was tired, barely able to keep my eyes open, and the sun was setting. I walked over to the wheatgrass, all golden and amber and swaying, and I stood still. I was a thousand miles in any direction from anyone I knew or loved. I was alone. My car door was open, and on the passenger seat was a torn and beaten paperback, a travelogue of sorts. Its spine was broken and the words had begun to blur, and I thought to myself, Dean left Sal to die, didn't he? Left him to die alone for the sake of movement and burning out life for nothing. And there was a moment then, a moment that I knew what to do and what to be. And I fell asleep in that wheatgrass as the sun went down on the side of the road a thousand miles from anyone or anything that I knew. And I was happy. When I woke, it was gone. That moment, that notion. Moments of clarity are like dreams, just shapes and impressions, forgotten ideas. You try to grasp them, you try to pull them back, but they just fade and they become vague notions of something that might have been. I got back in my car and I drove again. I drove for a very, very long time. On the shelf in my living room is a paperback copy of On the Road. If this were a movie, it would be the same copy, with the inscription to take comfort from with its memories symbolically hidden in its yellow pages. And that would be nice if life were like a movie, all cut and dry. But it's not the same copy. It's not the same book that was given to me by my brother all those years ago. 
the one I carried across the country, the one I read back to front so many times, the one I had with me in Nebraska when my life never changed. No, that one was lost a long, long time ago. But the words are still the same. The memories it invokes are still the same. Different, still the same. And I reached for it, and my fingers almost touched the spine to pull it from the shelf. Instead, I left it there to continue to gather dust as I walked away. Okay, well, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you've made it this far, I guess, well, I owe you a drink or something. (laughs) Now, this is going to be a thing that I do uh, much more often, more often than six months for sure. Uh, I know, I know, promises, promises, but I have good intentions, trust me. The key to this, though, is I need your feedback. I need to know your thoughts. I need to know what I'm doing right. I need to know what I'm doing wrong. I need your criticism as well as your validation in order to make this thing that I do better. So you can contact me in a variety of ways. First of all, you can go to my website, daddyelk.com. There will be a page for this particular recording, and there will be a place to leave comments and uh, send me a message. That's that's the easiest thing to do. You could also go to Facebook slash uh, Daddy Elk. Leave me comments there. Go to at Daddy Elk on Twitter and go to the hashtag ElkCast and uh, leave me your thoughts there. I will get right back to that one. I like that. I like I like the Twitter. Uh, the other thing you can do is just send me an email. Yeah, not many people do email anymore, but it's a thing you can do if that is your preference. Paul at DaddyElk.com. I will get it. I will respond. It's a good thing. So please. I'm serious. Leave me, leave me comments. I really want to know, you know, good or bad, how this is working out. Uh, so hopefully I will see you within the month with another story and another uh, rambling introduction and outro. Eh. So thank you very much for listening. You guys are awesome. See you later. Mm-hmm.